come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. Welcome, listeners, to episode 191 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, I'm your tour guide here of David Garrett Jr., recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And in this episode here for you, I have my Traverse of the Threes, number 13. So this one I have for you is I couldn't make it to the Gateway Film Center, so I end up watching for the older movie, and that one doesn't have any bearing on me going there, but I, <laughs> I digress, was Carnival of Sinners. This is one that is from 1943, looked kind of interesting, so I gave that one a watch. And then I'm also pairing that up with Leave. This is the one that I was kind of alluding to. I found it on Shudder. 2022 film got its release here this year, though. And then for mini-reviews, I gave a rewatch with Jamie to Cocaine Bear. I also got to watch The Legend of Hell House. That's my Traverse of the Threes from 1973. I got to watch a documentary called Hellraiser Evolutions. That was on Arrow Player. And then I also got to do a little bit of potential summer series prep of Pedro Paramo. And one episode of Fear the Walking Dead. So I don't think there's anything else I need you to speed with here for this intro, except let me get you over to my monthly review. For June of 2023, I have watched 32 films, 29 of them are horror films, 6 of them are 2023 released horror films, and my percentage of horror for the month of June then would be 90.63%. So then the horror movies that I watched are Rasputin the Mad Monk, The Exorcist, The Mummy Shroud, The Boogeyman, this is the one here from this year, uh, The Seventh Victim, The Outwaters, King Kong Escapes, The Found Footage Phenomena, that is a documentary. Manos, The Hands of Fate, The Leopard Man, From Black, Theater of Blood, Mad Heidi, The Torture Chamber of Dr. Sadism, Fulci for Fake, Knock at the Cabin, The Face of Another, The Vanishing, Attachment, Flesh for Frankenstein, Messiah of Evil, Carnival of Sinners, Cocaine Bear, Leave, The Legend of Hell House, Hellraiser Evolutions, Pedro Paramo, 28 Days Later, and Unwelcome. So then we have 14 countries that are represented. Those would be United States, United Kingdom, Canada, Japan, Switzerland, West Germany slash Germany, Italy, China, Netherlands, France, Denmark, Norway, Mexico, and Ireland. So then 
My 2023 watches are The Boogeyman, From Black, Mad Heidi, Attachment, Leave, and Unwelcome. Then the oldest watches that I did for the month are all from 1943, and they are The Seventh Victim, The Leopard Man, Carnival of Sinners. The average year is 1993. Then the highest rated are going to be The Exorcist at a 10, and I have another movie that I consider to be a 10 out of 10. Not going to reveal it here, though, because it is either going to be Summer Series Prep or is on another show. And then the lowest rated is another one that I can't reveal, but I gave it a 3.5 for similar reasons. So my average rating is a 7.3. Now the ones that are not on this feed are, are 28 Days Later. That's going to be on Where to Begin With on the T-Puts Collective. But I do have The Exorcist. That was a bonus episode that I recorded with Jamie. And then Messiah of Evil is actually going to be on this one, but it's going to be under SideQuest Podcast. We've got that recorded and everything, just kind of doing some of the behind-the-scenes stuff before that gets released. And then just to kind of give you my yearly totals, it is 36 2023 watches, 175 horror movies have been watched, 227 total films, average year is 1992, average rating 7.2, and then percentage of horror is 77.09%. So let me go ahead and start breaking some of these numbers down here a bit more for you. <laughs> okay, for June, it looks like my six releases from this year are it is tied for second as it looks like 2019 and 2021 were tied at seven then it has been 2020 and then last year with this year are all tied at six the lowest was 2018 where i only watched three so i've watched 35 movies that were released in that specific year in the months of june and then for horror films this one is looks like coming right in the middle my highest was 2019 at 52 and then it looked like 2021 I did 32, and then this year 29, last year was 28, 2020 was 26, the lowest was 2018 at 25. I've And then it looks like 192 total horror films watched in the months of June. Total films, this is at 32, which would actually put this, looks like even just one spot lower here, actually my second lowest total I've ever done. The highest was in 2019 at 53. And then I had last year was 37. It looks like 2018 and 2021 were 32, which then 30 or 33, sorry, 32 here. And then the lowest was 2020 at 28 movies. Actually, probably was one of the last times I ever missed a month. Blame that one on Jamie. But I've watched 216 total movies in the month of June since I've been keeping track. For the average year, this is one of the on the lower ends here. The highest it looks like was in 2021 and 2018, as that was tied at 2002. It looks like last year was 1998, and then 1995 and 2020. This is actually tied for the lowest average year at 2019, and now this is, of course, at 1993. My average year for everything that I watch in June is 1997. For the average rating, this one is on the lower end as well. As 2018, everything was an 8.3. 2019, 7.8, and then it looks like 2021, and then last year, we're tied at 7.5. This year's a 7.3, lowest 2020 at a 7.1. Average rating of everything I watch in the month of June is 7.6. Percentage of horror, we have the highest was in 2019 at 98.11%. Then it looks like 2021 was 96.97. Then we have this year coming in, or no, it looks like 2020 was 92.86. This year is a 90.63. And then I also had... In 2018, 75.76, and then last year was 75.68%. Average of horror that I watch in the months of June is 88.33%. So then to kind of put this year in respect with other ones, I'm at 36 horror films released this year. So I'm still, I believe, just below the pace that I need to. I know 
that October will be a big one there. But I've watched 470 horror movies released in that year that is, you know, coinciding. Now for horror movies, I'm at 175. And then I've watched 1,986 since I've started keeping track. I'm at 227 total films. And that means I'm at 2,502 overall. And then for average rating, I'm at... This year is bringing everything down. I'm at 1992 right now. I also think October might change this, but because every other year has been 1999 except for 2018 was 2000, and the average year is still 1998. Average rating, it's this year is my lowest at a 7.2. The other one still the lowest close to this was 2020 at 7.3, where the highest was the year before that in 7.6. 7.4 is still the average rating of everything I've watched. And then it also looks like percentage of horror. This one is... Actually, one of the higher ones right now at 77.09 as the lowest was 2018 at 72.07, but the highest is still 2019 at 86.87%. Overall of what I watch of horror is 78.97% still. And then I also kind of wanted to figure out some of the stuff from Letterboxd as well is that my most watched country that is not the U.S. is the United Kingdom for this year. Top language for this year that is not English is Italian. Highest rated country is Italy, France, Japan, and UK. Highest rated language is Italian, followed by Spanish, and English is tied with that. And then German is actually the next one there. My most seen actor is still Vin Diesel, but some horror guys, Lionel Atwill is at third. Bela Lugosi is tied with... Christopher Lee and Boris Karloff at 5th. Most seen director still is David Lynch and Jean-Denis Bonin, as they had a lot of shorts that I've watched. But I also have like Jacques Tournier and Andreas Schnass are tied at 4th. So I don't think there's anything else I need to do for this monthly review or this intro. So I will say thank you so much for listening. And let me get you over to a very brief break before I get into those mini reviews. And I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. And for my first mini review is going to be Cocaine Bear. This is from 2023. It was directed by Elizabeth Banks, written by Jimmy Warden. This stars Carrie Russell, Alden Einenreich, and O'Shea Jackson Jr. This is on IMDb as a comedy thriller. I think this is a horror movie in the fact that it becomes an animal attack movie. But this is from the United States, currently sitting on a 6.0 on IMDb and a 2.8 on Letterboxd with a synopsis being. An oddball group of cops, criminals, tourists, and teens converge on a Georgia forest where a huge black bear goes on a murderous rampage after unintentionally ingesting cocaine. So this one, if you want to hear a featured review where I go a little bit more in depth with this, I'll go to episode 174. That was Centennial Club number 11, as this was a featured review, as I was saying, with Warning Shadows, which not the greatest double feature there, but, you know, it is what it is, 100 years apart. But this one, I had a whole lot of fun while re-watching this. Jamie actually sat down to watch it with me because I, you know, went and saw it in the theater the first time around, and I figured she would enjoy it, so we just put this on on a Sunday night and just kind of went for a ride. This one is, it knows what it's doing and has fun with it. So I think that also helps. We get an absurd concept that is oddly grounded because this is based on a true story. Not necessarily what we get here, but there are elements in fact and they just kind of embellish. We have a good blend of comedy and horror, which always don't necessarily work for me. thought the effects were solid, including the CGI because I mean the bear is all CGI and everything like that. And we just have some brutal attacks where they do some interesting things there. This is just well made overall from the cinematography to the soundtrack. Don't take this too seriously. Just shut off your brain and go with this animal attack film. And I said even Jamie would agree as we cracked up watching this together. 
this was made for that to kind of, especially if you can get a group of people, I think this is well worth a watch. So my rating didn't move or anything like that. My rating for Cocaine Bear is still going to be a 7.5 out of 10. Might crack my top 10, but it's going to be, you know, at the very bottom of that list just because of kind of what it's doing. But if we don't get a whole lot of stuff coming through, this definitely will kind of make that bottom part, I think. And for my second mini review is going to be my Traverse of the Threes movie, which is going to be The Legend of Hell House. This is from 1973, directed by John Hogue. It was written by Richard Matheson, who also did the novel. This stars Roddy McDowell, Gail Honeycutt, and Pamela Franklin. This is a horror film that is from the United Kingdom. It is currently sitting on a 6.7 on IMDb and a 3.3 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being... A physicist, his wife, and two mediums are hired to investigate the Belasco house, where 27 guests were inexplicably died in 1927, along with most of a team of paranormal investigators that were set in the early 1950s. So this is a film that I would actually get mixed up with The Haunting of Hill House growing up. It would make sense, since my understanding, Richard Matheson wrote this novel as a darker and updated version of that haunted house-like story. It had been a while since I last saw this one, so I actually did it for a podcast that I was guested on a long time ago. So now I'm, I'm now giving it a rewatch here for, you know, being a threes movie. So where I want to start is that going back to that first viewing once more. I do believe that I caught part of it on one of the movie channels back when I was in junior high before going to school. But that would have been about the extent of what I saw. Now, ahead of watching it, I have read the novel after that, actually the, before that first viewing. What is interesting is that he wrote this screenplay as well as the novel. So that out of the way, the first thing I noticed is, you know, going from the source to the film is that the sexuality and violence are toned down for a more brooding atmosphere. The house they use embodies that. To go along with this, they moved it from the United States to the United Kingdom. I don't mind this. It makes sense as the characters are on, you know, to itself. And, you know, it makes the house itself be one as well. And I appreciate that. Our characters also go off by themselves and that makes them feel vulnerable, which is good. There aren't a lot of haunted house films that do that well. Now, I'm going to shift gears here a bit and bring in the filmmaking aspect. This movie moves faster than the novel, and by doing that, I think it loses a bit. We get the backstory through exposition shared by Ben, who is portrayed by McDowell. I do think more of this could have been shown to slow it down. Now, since they're giving us less of the visuals, I get just having it told. And what I mean by visuals there is not actually going over the top with some of the stuff that they've kind of removed. There's also a less of the darker haunting elements as well. Now going along with this, I like the concept that we have like a supernatural versus science. The film makes you question if it's haunted or if this is Florence projecting and causing everything that we see. Now she's even accused of doing this. Where things go are interesting for here, from here for sure. Now the acting is where I'll pull in next. This part is good. McDowell is the star and his performance is great. He seems so meek in the start, and the regret that we see on his face as everything goes down is great. Now, he is the survivor from the first time around that people came here after the 20s, and I almost feel like he was kind of like the Florence character, but now having experienced it, he's trying to be the rock, and he just really kind of wants everybody to survive. And then I would also say that Franklin is solid as this young psychic that is, you know, being played on by the ghost. I was saying as I get the idea that Ben was similar during his first visit, and that has changed him. Now, she hasn't prepared as she believes she is. Then we go over to Clive Revel. I thought, my first watch, I didn't really care for him. I thought he was stiff. Now that feels like by design as a rewatch, since he is a scientist, and it works better for me there. I would say Honeycutt is solid as his wife. We also get appearances here by Roland Culver, Peter Boyles, and Michael Goh. 
That helps to round this out, and I think they're all solid in their minor roles. I'm going to then shift over then to the rest of the filmmaking. I've already credited the setting and the atmosphere of the house. Soundtrack helps there as well. There's this brooding nature about it. We also get to hear disembodied voices. I think that adds an element there. We don't necessarily get to see the ghosts, and I'm almost glad that we don't. That could come off as cheesy. During the brutal effects of what happens with Florence works, there is a cat attack scene that did make me laugh. There is some charm there, though, but overall, this is a positive. So in conclusion, I feel that for me reading the novel, the first time around hurt my impression of what I was seeing for the first time. I love the book. I still enjoyed the film, but it was too tame for what I was hoping to see. A second watch did help for sure. I enjoyed the story, and I'm glad that Matheson wrote both the source and this. The ending is interesting. There is a great acting that we get here. Now, the score of this was amazing. It's also well made. If anything, I think that it runs too fast. Now, slowing down a bit would help there. This is one of the better Haunted House films out there. It's brooding in nature, and the atmosphere are pluses. The backstory is quite dark as well. I'd recommend this to fans of this subgenre or of this era of filmmaking. So my rating here for The Legend of Hell House after the second watch has come up to an 8 out of 10. And I also got to check out a documentary this week of Hellraiser Evolutions. This is directed by Anthony Mazzi. This stars Peter Atkins, Rick Boda, and Doug Bradley. This is a documentary horror film that is from the United Kingdom. It is currently sitting on a 5.8 on IMDb and not enough ratings on Letterboxd, but it looks like it's hovering closer to like a three-star effort here. And this is... There's a long synopsis here, but it's really about the Hellraiser franchise, and it's one that I decided to watch late in my workday. It sounded interesting since this is a franchise that I've seen every canon movie that's come out, and learning a bit more about the series since it does take some odd turns was one that intrigued me as well. Now, if you don't know, Hellraiser is based off the Clive Barker short, The Hellbound Heart. Barker directed the first movie, and then from there they started to build on the mythology. This documentary starts with the origins, and then later on, this started to take movies that were shoehorned in so Dimension Studios didn't lose the rights. I will say, despite the lesser efforts, I still enjoyed the franchise. It's been a while since I've run through them, and I've never done it with a critical eye, so it is on my docket. Now, what works here is interviewing important people for these movies. They have, you know, Bradley, who plays the iconic role of Pinhead in almost every movie except, like, I think the last two. What is interesting here is that he wasn't even supposed to be the main draw, but marketing saw an opportunity. This also has, like, Rick Boda and Scott Derrickson, who have directed movies. We have Stuart Gordon is a voice that I also enjoy hearing from, so that was good. We also have some other people in front and behind the camera to give their insights as well. I know Carrie Werther has a couple times where she's interviewed. I don't know if that was actually specifically for this or if that was archival. Um, we also have um, Carrie Payton. I know he was an actor in here. Then there's like Tony Randall and Gary J. Tunnicliffe, some other names that are also in this. So I'd also say that Arrow does a great job here. This is informative, just going through like how this was, you know, caught a lightning in a bottle. What is it shouldn't have worked as well as it did. The legacy and why it continues, that's also kind of interesting stuff there. This is well made. It is put together in chapters, and that makes sense. I rather enjoyed my time here as a fan of the franchise. I'd recommend this one as well, just to potentially learn more about why this worked as it did, and it's kind of interesting to hear some of the insights. So my rating here for Hellraiser Evolutions is going to be a 7 out of 10. Then my last review for a movie for this episode is going to be a potential summer series pick of Pedro Paramo. This is directed by Carlos Vilo. This is from 1967. It was written between Manuel Barbacchio Ponce, 
Carlos Fuentes and Velo, and then it's from the novel by Jean Juan Rufel. This stars John Gavin, Ignacio Lopez Tarso, and Pilfer Pellicier. This is a drama, fantasy, horror, mystery, romance, war film that is from Mexico. It is currently sitting on a 7.1 on IMDb and a 3.4 on Letterboxd with a snuff span, a son's search for his father in the chaotic times of the Mexican Revolution. So that's a very watered down one because the one on IMDb was very wordy. But this is a movie that I discovered from the IMDb page when looking for horror from 67 as a potential summer series pick. Took a bit of research, but I did find a copy on YouTube with subtitles. And what little I read about it, I was intrigued to see this one, especially because it, it's an older foreign movie. And those ones really just kind of perked my interest. So this one is not one to watch while you're tired. I actually had to stop it and then restart it the next night because it was just it was subtitles. It's... There's a lot going on in this movie, and having a language barrier, this is you got to have full attention here. So this is based from a novel, and we have this character of Juan, who is portrayed by Carlos Fernandez, and he's trying to find his father, who is the title character of Pedro Paramo. Now, this is portrayed by John Gavin, and this is a downer as his mother passes away, and she has told him the name of his father, so he's going out to look. So this one actually becomes like a Mexican gothic film where we have these ghosts that are directing him and telling him stories about his father as we kind of get the idea that his father might not be alive anymore either. At least he's not necessarily sure and he goes down this weird kind of journey. But we have gothic elements where ghosts might not be evil here. They are just kind of telling their stories and it's kind of interesting being that I know Mexico, there's a lot of Roman Catholic there. And this almost feels like it could fall in line with like a romantic period of literature. And I wouldn't be shocked if something like this inspired Guillermo del Toro. So we have Juan who is looking for his father. And we kind of learned that his father was a womanizer. He knew how to work the system. And Gavin just plays this in a way where he's so charismatic. I don't necessarily think he's a good guy. I don't necessarily think he's an evil man. But he does a lot of bad things. But I think Gavin's performance makes it where he comes off likable and it works here. Now, I don't necessarily know if this is horror or not. There are ghosts. I don't necessarily think that automatically puts you in the genre. They aren't the villains here. We don't truly have one from what I see. As I said, Pedro isn't a good guy, but he's far from being a monster. I don't blame any of his children for harboring hate, and I'm guessing that this falls in the genre for you know having the ghosts and the brooding atmosphere of depression for how this man has affected so many people and the death of the town because of his decisions. I think the acting is good across the board, though. Everybody is solid from people like Gavin, Tarso, Pelliser, Julissa, Graciela Doreen, Fernandez, Augusto Benedico, Beatrice Sheridan, Claudia Milan, Rosa Furman. There's also um, Joaquin Martinez, who doesn't seem like he's super important in the beginning, but actually plays a major role here. They all fit for what's needed in the story. I think this is well made. This is a beautiful black and white movie. We have the bleakness of the desert in this ghost town, and this reflects Juan and dealing with the grief of losing his mother. Then we have the dichotomy of the town at its height when Pedro steps in and takes over the show, and just how there were good times here. The town is a direct fall to his decisions. I kind of got a parallel of the fall of the House of Usher. This was kind of loose, but it made me think of it. There's not a lot in the way of effects. The ghosts look grounded as I was actually partially confused at first, but when we hear disembodied voices, that's where it clicked. Also, the rest of the soundtrack fit. But this is an interesting art house film. We have a story here that has two parts to it. We have Juan dealing with the grief and trying to find his father. 
and it's through these ghosts that he learns about this man and then as well as a downfall i love the look of this there's some aspects of the filmmaking that kind of went over my head another watch i think could help i also think learning more about the mexican history and culture would help deepen my appreciation and enjoyment here not one that i can recommend to everybody as it is also like i said art house it is light on the horror elements as well, but if I had to say if this piques your interest, I'd recommend this one of viewing. Not going to give my rating just because this could end up on the Summer Series. I don't necessarily know if I'll pick it, but it still is in a contention there, so I would recommend it if this sounds good, though. And then the last thing I'm going to do here is going to be the episode of Fear the Walking Dead that I watch, which is All I See is Red. This was directed by Michael E. Strada Zemis. This was written by Robert Kirkman, Tony Moore, and Charlie Adler. This stars Lenny James, Ken Dickens, and Coleman Domingo. That's not very good, actually, because I don't think all these people, regardless. But this one is Morgan fights his past as he and Madison race to stop Padre's expansion. So this one, we're actually featuring Morgan blacking out in rage. I guess this is something that's been happening. It just hasn't been happening for a while. He was able to control it kind of after Mo goes off with the people at Padre. But it is resurfacing now, especially with what happened to to grace and he's actually dangerous to not only walkers but to people too as he almost attacks mo and we actually get to see these good things where we get flashes of stuff and then he'll come out of it with it like the screen will turn red a bit and then but then we also have that the prefects that are these kids with padre they don't want to go back to their parents and then morgan found a walker with binoculars so he's able to entice shrike and her brother to come out to where the houseboat is there's actually kind of some interesting stuff. I'm not going to spoil what happens there, but there is actually a deal that could be made here between them and Padre to stop the fighting. We also have Dwight and Sherry. There's actually a kind of sad thing here, and their boy wants to have Shrike not necessarily be tortured like he was. It actually kind of gets kind of sad between them as they might be calling it quits. So I'm kind of sure, not sure what Dwight's going to do. And then actually Mo has to make a decision here with Morgan as it seems like he's going to go back towards the world where The Walking Dead happened. I'm not really sure how that's going to happen because I'm pretty sure that show has fully ended. This episode just feels rushed. I believe they're actually taking their mid-season break here because when I was looking at it, the next episode doesn't have anything for it. I didn't really care for this one either just because, like I said, it does feel forced. I do know that they're starting up for another little spinoff show of The Walking Dead. I think it's like Dead City or something like that. This one's actually going to be featuring Negan and and Maggie. So I've actually started watching that. I actually kind of look at it. It looks like there's some actually cool characters. I'm only about halfway through the first episode there. So we shall see. So that's all I have here for mini reviews. So let me get you over to the trailer of my first featured review. Et il est peut-être jaloux. <rire> de vous oh, mon pauvre J'ai des copains qui ont confiance en moi. Oh, vos copains. Savez-vous comment ils vous appellent, vos copains, quand vous avez le dos tourné Cause toujours. Ce sont des envieux. Écoutez, Roland, un conseil. Rentrez chez vous et jetez un coup d'œil autour de votre atelier. Mais, mais vous serez épouvanté. Mais c'est une galerie de navets. Vous ne produirez jamais que des navets. Vous êtes en impuissant. Oh, vous êtes dur. Vous avez raison. Vous venez de m'ouvrir les yeux parfaitement. Jusqu'à présent, j'étais la proie des scrupules, mais maintenant j'ai compris. Dès demain, je me mets à la tâche. Je vais faire un grand machin de vous. Un grand portrait. Vous le verrez dans trois mois au salon. Un nu, naturellement. Un, un, un bon nu. Oui, mais voir, je vois ça d'ici. Le salon, en passant par la chambre à coucher. Hein. Non, non, trop tard, mon petit. Il y a un mois, vous aviez une chance, c'est vrai. Quand je vous ai vu, je me suis dit, un peintre, pourquoi pas Il a du talent, moi, de l'ambition. Bah, à nous deux, nous ferons quelque chose. Bah oui. Bah oui, bah comme on se trompe. 
Ben Donnez-moi quelques semaines. Mais je n'ai plus le temps. Ben quelques jours. Je ne vais pas rester vendeuse toute ma vie. Qu'est-ce que vous voulez, vous Si ces messieurs dames voulaient commander quelque chose, il se fait tard. Qu'est-ce que vous avez C'est du chevreau. Sous forme de gants <rire> Non, madame, rôti, avec de la pourrée des marrons, une farce extra que vous m'en direz des nouvelles, que c'est la spécialité du jour. Oui, c'est un mauvais jour. Mais le chevreau, il est bon, on vient des loin ici pour les manger. Non, il n'y a pas plutôt du pécari ou du din. Oh, il est vrai que pour le din, je suis servi. Oh. Donnez-nous ce que vous voulez. Merci, monsieur. Laissez-moi faire que vous m'en direz des nouvelles. Dans la vie aussi, vous laissez les autres composer votre menu. Alors, n'invitez personne à dîner et ne vous mêlez pas de souhaiter la fête des gens. Ah, oh, il m'aurait pas offert des gants, lui. Qui, lui hmm? Quelqu'un. Il m'a jamais rien offert du tout, d'ailleurs. Même pas de vous épouser, je parie. Non, mais enfin, c'était un homme, il savait ce qu'il voulait. Et moi aussi, je sais ce que je veux. Quoi Vivre et loin de vous. Lâchez-moi Vous êtes assez grand pour me faire mal, mais trop petit pour me faire peur. Trop petit Oui, trop petit. Vous serez toujours qu'un petit pain dans un petit atelier. Vous mangerez à des petites tables. Vous aimerez les petites femmes dans les petits lits. Et quand vous aurez fini votre petite vie, on vous mettra dans une petite boîte. Au revoir, mon petit C'est le talisman qui opère. Vous avez un talisman pour rouler les cigarettes Oui, monsieur. Un talisman extraordinaire. Il donne l'habileté, la réussite, les talents, les femmes, tout. Je vous le vends. Vous avez un talisman qui donne tout ça et vous voulez le vendre Il faut que je le vende. Pourquoi Parce que... Si je ne le vends pas avant que de mourir, je serai damné. Vous entendez éternellement damné. Tiens, tiens. Et quand je reste toute la journée au-dessus de mes fourneaux à me griller les poils, c'est comme un avant-goût de la saleur de l'enfer. Sans blague. Ne riez pas. Enfin, si c'est tout aussi étonnant que vous le prétendez, votre talisman, c'est pas, pas l'enfer qui vous empêche de trouver acquéreur. Et si Pourquoi Vous le vendez cher Mais non. Un sou. En effet, c'est pas cher. Je l'ai acheté deux sous, je ne peux non le revendre qu'un sou. Pourquoi parce qu'on ne peut le revendre qu'à perte moins cher qu'on ne l'a acheté. Ah, c'est amusant. Venez le voir. J'ai l'impression que ça vous intéressera, vous, un artiste. Et comment savez-vous que je suis un artiste Toujours l'étalissement, monsieur. Venez. Venez. J'ai pensé des mains pour vous montrer les chemins. Ne l'achetez pas, monsieur. Ne l'achetez pas. Tais-toi donc, toi, sale chèteur de sort Mais, Ne l'achetez pas, monsieur Ne l'achetez pas Qu'est-ce que c'est que ce type-là Un pauvre fou Parce qu'il s'appelle Ange de son prénom, il croit qu'il est le gardien de tous les mondes. Entrez. Entrez ici. Est-ce que vous avez des ordres C'est ça, votre talisman Seulement la boîte, les cercueils. La chose est dedans. And for my first feature review here is going to be Carnival of Sinners. This goes by the original title of La Main du Diable. I think it's my how you might pronounce that. My French isn't very good because I never took it, I guess. But this is from 1943, directed by Maurice Tournier. This is written by Jean-Paul Le Chanus. 
And then it comes from the novel written by Gerard de Nerval. This stars Pierre Fresny, Jocelyn Galli, Noel Roquet-Vert, while also featuring Guillaume de Saxe, Paolo, Pierre Larquet, Andre Gabarello, Antoine Delpert, Marcel Reyna, Andre Varnice, George Chermarat, Jean Davy, Jean Despu, Andre Bucky, Rene Blanchard, Jean Colquillin, Jacques Cortine, and George Duquin. If I mispronounce any of those names, I do apologize once again. But this is a fantasy horror film that is from France. It is currently sitting on a 7.4 on IMDb and a 3.6 on Letterboxd with our synopsis being. Roland Bassot bought a talisman for a nickel that gives him love, fame, and wealth. The talisman is a severed left hand and it works perfectly. Of course, nothing in this world is free. And after one year, the devil comes and asks for his dues. So this movie that I discovered when looking for horror films from 1943. It took me a bit to find, and I had to watch it through the Criterion channel. When confirming that this was the right movie, I noticed the last name of the director of Tournier. As it turns out, this is... Maurice is the father of Jacques, a director that I've been watching more of their works as of late, especially because, you know, they worked with Val Luton. Other than that, I came into this one blind. But before I get into the movie itself, let me do some featured notes, and I'll start with our director of Tournier. It is interesting that the last film... From this year that I covered, obviously, was by his son. So we're, you know, coming full circle there. But the father did 79 works. First one that I've seen is this. He did do four in horror. He did Dr. Groudon's System, The Man with Wax Faces. Those are from the teens. And we also did the lost film While Paris Sleeps, which was covered on the last episode as one of the lost films that I could not see from 1923, I believe. But this was his last in genre. Then to the writer of the novel of D. Norval. He has two adaptations that is credited to him, both in horror. His other one is from 1968 and is called Revenge, as I have not heard of that one. Then the writer of this film is Lee Chano. He has 18 credits, and I've only ever seen this one. This is the only one that he did in horror. Then to the cast, I'll start with Fresne. He has 62. I've seen three. The first two are Grand Illusion and The Man Who Knew Too Much, which are classics. Only one in genre that he did was this. Then to his co-star of Gull. She has 42 films. I've only ever seen this and the only one in horror. Then lastly, I'll look at Roque Vert. He has been in 145 films and I've seen two, both in genre with Diabolique and now this one here, which is kind of interesting because I do believe that other one was also French. So, you know, kind of makes a lot of sense there. So let's get into this one here. Now we start with a great shot of picturesque mountains nestled in them as a cabin. There's, it seems like a resort and there is buzz as the roads leading in or out are blocked. So they're actually looking for volunteers being asked to like help of people that are staying there so they can get these cleared. Should also point out that this is in France, in the Alps, close to Italy. So then a stranger arrives. He only has one hand, and this turns out to be Roland. Now he is being portrayed by Fresne. And since coming in, his presence draws attention. He also has a package with him. Now I know there are gunshots, and then the police show up as well. And they're looking for somebody dressed in all black. Now the lights go out and when they come back on, Roland is upset because his package has been stolen. And he tells him the story of what led him here and why this package is so important. But Roland was a painter. He is struggling. But his girlfriend has faith in him. Her name is Irene and she's portrayed by a gal. 
Now, she takes his work to sell it. There are events where Roland encounters a man who is trying to sell a box, and inside is a severed hand from the synopsis. He cannot give it away, and it must be sold at a loss. Without thinking much of it, Roland buys it. But he buys it very cheap, only for Nicola, as it turns out, from the synopsis. That night, he blacks out, paints with his left hand, and it turns out to be his best work. I should also point out here, I didn't have it written down, is that he actually signs a different name, and it confuses him, but this comes into play later. It is from there that he ends up becoming a success. There is a gallery open, and things are looking up for Roland. He keeps the hand in a box, and we see an interesting scene here where he uses only his left hand and then wraps this box in paper and ties it up. This amazes Irene. Roland also sees this small man that is dressed with a nice hat. No matter where Roland goes, he sees him. This guy even comes to the gallery opening. It is there that he reveals his identity. As it turns out, there are rules of the hand that he bought. Roland's soul now belongs to this man, and there's no way for him to sell it for less than what he bought it for, which becomes problematic. Now the terms then become, for every day from here on out that he has it, the item doubles in value. If he gives up the item and pays off this guy, he loses everything. He decides to keep it, and then the deal you know, stays the same. Now the rest of this decision weighs on him, and the devil truly is in the details as well. So that's where I'm going to leave my recap and introduction to the characters. Where I want to start is that I didn't realize what type of story we'd get here. Now this feels like a classic, while also being almost a variation on Faust. I did find this to be based on a novel, and so I'm kind of taking that they use a similar premise to do their own thing. Now there are also vibes of the monkey paw, where you kind of have to be careful what you wish for almost. Now material things and being happy, but just at what cost are you willing to kind of pay? The premise is where I'll then go. I'm taking that before Roland obtained the talisman, he was a struggling artist. It looks like he has talent, he just hadn't found his place that would allow him to take off. When he does buy this item, he just does it kind of on a whim. I don't think he believes that it will do anything. Now there's an interesting concept to explore. Does this item have power, or is it more in his head? It made me actually think of Space Jam when Michael Jordan shows up, or comes up with the idea, I mean, of this idea of the secret drink to give the tunes confidence. Now having this item could be given a role in this confidence. It is shaken when the guy comes claiming that of who he is and that the payment's due. This could be the event to shake his confidence. He then worries about money and lashes out at Irene. I like that this all could be in his head, or maybe he has struck up a deal with the devil, giving him what he needed to be to actually succeed. Now there's also this religious angle. Roland has an experience or a dream of sorts where he meets the other owners of this item. They're all you know met different ends, and they all had different things that kind of were helped from it. Now the origin of the hand is revealed, and it belonged to a monk. There's an interesting loophole here that I don't love. It does fit in line, though, with, like, religious-type stuff. And there's also this idea that you can't enter an agreement on false pretenses. Heck, there's even a commentary here on reading the fine print before agreeing. It does feel almost something like Bedazzled, where you could be borrowing elements from this novel for those two versions of that movie. What also works is that there's a way to read this that Roland's success comes from confidence and that there's actually no supernatural elements here. This is him continuing to reconcile in his head. Personally, I think there is a deal and everything happened. I just like the idea that there is an argument against it that I don't think either side is wrong. Now, I'm not sure if there's more I can go into the first story, so let me go over to the acting. Fresne is good as our lead. I like that at first he doesn't believe. It isn't until he is stressed about being able to pay off his deal when that is taken, he panics. The stress gets him, which is good. That raises tension. Gal works and as his counterpart, 
What I like is that she seems madly in love with him before he is successful. When he has made it and he's deciding what to do, she does subtle things with the character that makes me think if Roland gives up the item, he loses her. Their art together is heartbreaking. I'd also credit Paulu here as well. He plays his villainous character in a way where you don't know if he is who he says. He isn't over the top, but he just kind of plants seeds of doubt. And I was, I was actually there for it. I was a fan. I'd say the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed to help push Roland to where he ends up. Now, all that's left before I do a little bit of trivia is filmmaking. I did have a slight issue with the story and how it started. It took me about 15 minutes to settle in. Once I figured out what they were doing, I went for the ride. This is good cinematography, so that helps. I love when Roland is seeing this man everywhere and it makes him nervous. It almost feels like It Follows may have borrowed this idea. The man is just nondescript, which adds to it. There aren't the need for effects here. No issues with what we get. I like the look of the severed hand, and I'd also say the soundtrack fits for what was needed without necessarily standing out. Now, I'm going to be very brief with trivia. There's only one piece on here. Now, the premise of each owner of the Talisman having to sell it at a loss was first used by Robert Louis Stevenson in 1891 short story, The Bottle Imp, and it creates a paradox similar to The Unexpected Hanging. So that was a little bit of an interesting stuff there. So then, in conclusion, this is an interesting little story. It's basic in its plot. This man buys an item that might give him luck to succeed. It could also be in his head where he now has the confidence due to purchasing it. What helps there is the acting of Fresny. I'd say it is him and the rest of the cast are solid in their performances. This is a well-made movie. Cinematography would lead the way there. This is one that I'd recommend to fans of this era of cinema. It doesn't do anything great, but I like the ride that it took me on. And I also kind of think that there might be stuff that has come out after this that is borrowing as well. So be advised that this is from France and from the 1940s, so if those are issues, I would avoid this. If not, I think this is a solid little film. So I gave my rating here as Carnival of Sinners an 8 out of 10, and I'm not going to do a spoiler section as I don't really necessarily think I need to delve into anything more, so let me get you over to the trailer of my second featured review.
And for my second featured review is going to be Leave. This is technically from 2022, but it got its wide release here in 2023, at least in America. This is directed by Alex Heron. It was written by Thomas Moldstad. The stars Alicia von Rittberg, Herman Tom Maras, and Stieg R. Amdam. While also featuring Ellen Dora Peterson, Morton Holst, Gree M. Dahl, Christine Dolan, Alicia M. Eidson, Peter Ford, Ragenhild Grundbranson, Kali Henny, Nicholas Kleppi, Oliver Hawkland Crosso, Bjorn Myrie, Maria Alm Norel, Gerald Peterson, and Clarence Smith. If I mispronounce those names, I do apologize. But this is a drama horror mystery thriller film that is from Norway. It is currently sitting on a 4.8 on IMDb and a 2.5 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being, a young woman tries to find her origins after having been abandoned at a cemetery wrapped in a cloth with satanic symbols. But as she gets closer to answers, a malevolent spirit is telling her to leave. So this is a movie that I decided to check out when I was looking for a 2023 release in horror for Journey with a Cinephile here. As you know, I kind of always like to do this double feature type thing. I couldn't make it to the theater, so I just decided to watch this one as, you know, it was on there and it kind of looked interesting. So I'll be honest, though. I came in not knowing much aside from the genre that it fit. I did read a bit of the synopsis, though, ahead of watching it, just so you're kind of aware there. But before I get into the movie, let me do some featured notes on some of the key people. And I'll start with our director here of Heron. Now, they have helmed two. This is their first, and then they have another follow-up that looks to be in horror as well called Dark Windows, but I not heard much about this one. Over to our writer, Molstad is an interesting one. They've done 14 total, I've seen three, all in horror with Cold Prey, its sequel, and now this, and I rather enjoyed those first two. So then over to the cast, I'll start with Von Rittberg. I've seen two of her 24. Out of genre, I've seen Fury, you know, the tank movie that had... Like Shia LaBeouf and I think Brad Pitt. But this is her only work in genre. Then to her co-star of Tomaras. He has been in four things. He has two, though, that are in horror, with the first one being called Nightmare. It looks like it was from last year. I've not seen that one, and then this is the only thing that I've seen him in so far. Then moving over to Peterson, she has 24 credits, and I've seen two. Five of hers are in horror. I have not seen Darkwoods 2, Shelley, or Possession, that one from last year. I did see her in The Innocence, where she was the mother of the girl with the severe autism, as well as her little sister. So, that's one I have seen. I also wanted to bring up Amdam. This is the first thing that I've seen him in. He has nine in total. This is the only one that he's done in genre as well. So, and for this movie here, we start this off beginning with the synopsis here by the cemetery. There's a 911 call, and the police come to check it out. They find a baby wrapped in cloth. It then shifts to the present day as this baby has grown up to be Hunter White, portrayed by Von Rittberg. She was adopted by Raylan, portrayed by Smith. Now, his wife has passed away, so it's just these two. Now, he does have two other sons that are older and have moved away to start their own family. So, in the house, it's really just been these two. Now, Hunter is curious about her past, though. She was supposed to be heading off to Georgetown to start school, but instead goes to Norway to find out about her parents. Now, she has the papers about what happened and how she was found. Like, there's an article from the newspaper. Now, she gets her wires crossed, and it takes some finagling to get into her room. There's also a presence following her and helps set her on the right path. So then this leads her to Cecilia, portrayed by Peterson. She was a lead singer of a band, and it seems like back in the day, it was a metal group. 
Now, she isn't Hunter's mother, and she ends up telling her, though, that it's her father was Christian, portrayed by Holst, who was in the band, and he was dating Anna. Now, she became pregnant, and that's where it takes a dark turn. She left the baby, and this upset Christian. He supposedly burned her alive inside of a church, and then this man was then checked himself into a mental hospital. Now, Hunter visits him, but it doesn't net any more information that she had prior. She also doesn't relay to him that she thinks that she is his daughter, especially because he gets so upset about the question she was asking about her mother. So then it's through Cecilia that she learns about her family. They are wealthy and highly religious. She is directed to where they live. This leads her to Lillian Norheim, portrayed by Gud Bradson. Now, she would be her aunt. It is here that she meets her uncle, Olaf, portrayed by Peterson as well. But this one is spelled with two T's and a lot of E's. But then they have a son as well, who is Hunter's cousin of Stian, portrayed by Tomaras. Now, she also gets to meet her grandfather of Torsten, portrayed by Amdam. He's happy to meet her, but he's also stern. Now, when she asks questions about her mother, things get shut down. Hunter asks about her diary, and Torsten won't hear anything of it. Stian wants to help, but in his own way. There's a dark secret to this family, and this entity that is following Hunter might not be what she thinks it is. So that's going to leave my recap introduction to the characters. Where I want to start is that, having now watched this and reflecting on it, this feels like a modern gothic film that is set in Norway. If you tell me that this was based on a Bronte sister story, I wouldn't be shocked. What I'm getting at here is that the ghosts might not be evil and that the people could be harboring darkness, which in today's world goes against norms. That is something I can appreciate. And what I mean by norms there is normally in a haunted house film, the ghosts are the villain. This one's kind of going back to the old ways of doing things where the ghosts might be trying to tell you something. They could be evil. You kind of have to figure things out as we go. So now that said, let me get to the basic story here. Hunter is adopted, and her being found is an odd circumstance. I'm not sure if this was established or not as to how she originally learns about where she is and how she was found as a baby. That would make me wonder what the heck as well. Now, she was found in a cemetery, and she was wrapped in a cloth with satanic symbols on it. There is not much more to go on outside of a box that her father has in the attic. Now, she does a DNA test, and that leads her to Norway because I think it comes up as like high, high probability that that's where she's from. There might also be some other papers in the stuff because there is a picture that she's kind of going on that leads her to this band as well. So then when she arrives, she doesn't know what her next move is and this entity nudges her and I thought that worked in the framework of the story. Where I'm going to shift next then would be the father was in a Norwegian death metal band. I love this idea since they were thought to be anti-Christian and Satanist. That would explain why she was found in this blanket. Now what is interesting is that she's also wearing an upside down cross necklace. She assumes that it was, you know, going along with these symbols. The more she learns about her culture, the more that it's like an Norse mythology icon. That was good to break the preconceived notions here. Then getting back to Cecilia and Christian, just because they were in this band doesn't make them evil. There is the idea though that Christians and those with strict beliefs are the true villains. Now where I like this is I also think that it is also getting overplayed. I. I'm an atheist, of course, but having Christians be the villains, I also kind of think is getting a little bit overplayed as of late. We really kind of see that quite a bit. Now, this last one that I'm going to go into here would be more with Hunter as she learns about the family. She discovers a history where the women in this family seem to go crazy. This also makes her nervous that it could be genetic. This happened to a few before her. I was also wondering if she was going crazy with this entity that she was seeing. How this is used works. Once again, going back to the gothic elements, 
Now, there is a reveal here that I didn't necessarily love. I won't spoil what it is, but I will say is that this does explore toxic masculinity through Torstein and Stian, which I appreciated. Now, I'm going to go over then to the filmmaking. I think that this is well made. We do good things with the cinematography. Tension is built from the fact that Hunter's father doesn't know where she is. If anything happens to her, she is lost forever. There's this interesting parallel to her being dropped off in a cemetery to her position as an adult. What I have a problem with is that outside of that, this struggles to build tension and fully keep my interest. I like that it explores and where it goes, but I wanted a bit more to be invested. The effects that we get are solid. They don't use a lot, and I'm kind of glad they didn't go heavy CGI there. This is less of a ghostly than I was expecting you know, from what we were getting early on, and I appreciate that. I'd almost say this is a tamer version of Crimson Peak in the fact that we don't see the ghost nearly as much here, other than that the soundtrack fit for what was needed. Now, all that's left then is the acting. I thought that Von Rittberg was solid as our lead. She has a charm about her, and I'm curious to see where she goes. I also don't want to see bad things happen to her, so that works. Tomaras was, on the other hand, a jerk, and I disliked him from the beginning. There's an arrogance about him that comes from that, and I'm guessing it's kind of being, you know, old money. He feels slighted about everything. Then Amdam was fitting as the older version with more standing. He is imposing with a screen presence. I'd also say that Peterson, Holst, Good Bradson, Smith, Maria, Alm, Norell, the other Peterson, and the rest of the cast kind of rounded this off for what was needed. So in conclusion here, this is a movie that has some interesting elements to it. I'm not sure if it sticks to landing in the execution, though. We get a modern gothic story. We have Hunter, who was abandoned as a baby looking for her family. There's a supernatural presence guiding her. She might be evil, and it might not be. It explores humanity and how outward appearances and beliefs hide what we have inside. I thought this was acted well. The filmmaking was solid. The problem that I have is it doesn't keep me invested until the end. Not a bad one to check out, but I wouldn't rush to see this one, unfortunately, either. So my rating here for leave is going to be a 6 out of 10. Now, there wasn't any trivia that I could find about it, and I don't really want to go into a spoiler section. I don't think there's anything that I could net from it to help deepen anything, in my, in my opinion. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to one last break before I close out the show. Journey with a Cinephile. I would like to welcome you back and then just to close everything out here if you'd like to send me an email with any sort of feedback or anything that you'd like to have right on the show you can send me that email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com if there's anything that you send me you don't want right on the show just let me know in that email if you'd like to read any of the reviews from anything on this episode or any of the past episodes that's horrorreview.webnode.com if you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook I'm David Mishkin Garrett Jr. On Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. And over there, I'll be posting all of the reviews of anything that I'm watching that is horror or non-horror alike. If you'd like to follow my Instagram page, that's David OSU87. If you'd like to follow the Journey with a Cinephile Instagram, that's Journey with a Cinephile, all one word. What I will be posting over there is on both of them the movie posters of anything that I am reviewing. And if you follow my personal one, every now and then you might see some personal pictures if I ever post any because I tend to forget while I'm out and about. And just to make it easier on you, I'll have all of those links in the show notes. And then the last thing I'd ask you to do is that whatever podcatching device you're listening to me on, if you could go ahead and hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode, that would be greatly appreciated. Also, if you're able to rate and review just so I can figure out what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't like, as well as to get out to more listeners out there as well. 
And then for my next episode, it's going to be, once again, a Traverse Through the Threes. Looks like it's going to be number 14 for that. And the two movies that I'm going to be having for you are going to be, I believe it's Unwelcome, is a movie I found on Shudder. I believe my buddy Derek was the one talking about this one. Looked kind of interesting, so I'm going to watch that. And I'm Because there was nothing new coming to the Gateway Film Center. I'm going to try to get out there to see Jaws, since they like to show it every 4th of July. We shall see how the weekend kind of plays out for that and everything. But I'm also going to be watching The Return of the Vampire. That's going to be my really older Traverse of the Threes. That's going to be from 43, I believe. And then for the other one, I believe it's actually The Satanic Rites of Dracula is what I'm also going to be trying to watch. That's from 73. I'll also get in some more, you know, summer series prep. I'm also going to watch Infinity Pool since I now see that is streaming on Hulu. So I don't think there's anything else I need to get up to speed with here. I will say thank you so much for listening and whatever you do today, I hope you're safe and doing and have a great time out there. This is your tour guide of David Garrett Jr. and I am signing off. It had been a wonderful evening. And what I needed now to give it the perfect ending. <laughs>